So what we need to do is build a movement for change. We need to start changing some of those cultural narratives. We need to start talking to people about some of the challenges our young people face and the ways in which we can support better outcomes. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Everyone, welcome to Purposely with Lani Evans. Lani is the CEO of the Voto Foundation Aotearoa. She is one of the leading voices of philanthropy in New Zealand. She's also a social enterprise guru, and she is prolific in what she's done. She's also a mum. She loves the outdoors. It's a really awesome conversation. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe. It really does make a difference to getting the word out there. Enjoy the episode. Lady Evans, kia ora, and welcome to Purposely. Kia ora, it's lovely to be having a chat with you today. You too. You are the CEO of the Vodafone Foundation Aotearoa. What is its vision? What's its purpose? Yeah, so um, Te Roto, the Vodafone Aotearoa Foundation, we have been around for 20 years now, and our purpose is really to create a more equitable Aotearoa for rangatahi, for young people. And our goal is to reduce the number of young people who experience exclusion and disadvantage. So we have a really big vision uh, and we, yeah, really, really hoping to make some significant change for, for young people around the country. And how long have you been in the role? So I have been with Tedodo for six years now uh, with a short break uh, for parental leave in the midst of that. Wonderful. And it's, a, it's there's other Vodafone foundations across the globe, aren't there? But your foundations are a bit different and it's taken a direction and it's very much embracing biculturalism and had a little bit of a, a rebrand. So when you talk about it, you talk about Tororo, what does that mean for our global audience? Yeah, so um, it's based on a whakatoki or a proverb um, uh, from Te Ao Māori, from the Indigenous language in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And that whakatoki is, with your food basket and my food basket, the people will thrive. And it's the idea that actually it's our collective contributions that really make change and we need to work together to strengthen and achieve our aspirations. And a roro is the food basket. So it's a really, uh, yeah, really meaningful and really lovely way of us starting to express ourselves and and who we want to be as an organisation. And give us a feel for the size of it and the, the amount of, of money that you're donating on and each year. Give us a feel for, and how big the team is and but how it's structured. Sure. Tedoro has been, as I said, around for about 20 years. Actually, for exactly 20 years. We started in 2002 and over that time, Vodafone has invested more than $47 million in the foundation. So we invest around $2 million per year into community projects uh, and programmatic work. We are a doer and a donor. So we both invest money through grant programs to community organizations. And where it's appropriate, we also run our own programs of work, particularly in the digital equity space. We have a team of seven people and we primarily are focusing on place-based interventions in Mirahiku, which is in Southland at the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. So a lot of our work is focused down there and a lot of our team is focused down there. And as well as that, we also do work in the systems change space, in the space of knowledge creation and data sharing, and also in digital equity. Wonderful. So using Vodafone's IP and their resources, as well as money that you can invest or or donate or, or grant, all of those things together to to lead transformation and, and change lives for the better? 
Yeah, that's certainly the aspiration. Definitely trying to to make the use make use of all of the resources we have at our disposal. And obviously, Vodafone, as a telecommunications um, company, has a huge amount of expertise that we really want to bring into the community sector for the purposes of making sure young people have access to things like the digital world and um, high quality education, as well as bringing in the particular skills and experiences that sit within the teams at Vodafone. And an example of that is we've just been doing a piece of work, design thinking work, with one of the EWI groups down south to try and help them think through how they're engaging with young people and making sure that what they're doing is effective. So we're able to use the expertise of volunteers from the business. We're able to use the the network and relationships that sit within the business as well as the funds that we're provided with. And why young people? Was that a global theme that was developed? No. So actually... When the Vodafone Foundation first started in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we used to do a bit more of a, you know, a staff survey. What do people care about? And that's where our funding would be directed. And over time, what we saw is that the thing that people consistently cared about within our teams was young people. And so since 2017, oh, sorry, since 2007, we've been focused exclusively on creating better outcomes for young people. And that's given us the ability to create a depth of expertise in that area of practice and it's also given us uh, the ability to build long-term relationships with organizations who are really creating positive impact for young people. Excellent and a different kind of philanthropy in that what I've noticed and you've helped shape the Vodafone Foundation into being around about partnering with people and that sort of empowered giving I would describe it as so working with communities I'm very much listening to them and helping them shape the response that you have. Yeah, absolutely. So we're trying to be as relational as possible. We try and center the voices of those with lived experience. Uh, and we, you know, we don't always get it right, but we're always trying to iterate, always trying to improve our practice and make sure that what we're doing serves the communities that we're working in rather than serving us as an organization. An example of that would be, I said that we're, we're focusing on a place-based approach in Medehiku in Invercargill in Southland and the way that we came up with our funding strategy down there was to engage with lots of young people with lived experience of exclusion and disadvantage and ask them what the what, what is their vision for the future what are their aspirations and then what are the barriers and the opportunities that would help them get there and that information from those young people with lived experience and all of the expertise that comes with that is what helped to shape our funding strategy down there. So really trying to make sure that we're centering those that we're trying to support. And you've it's a separate entity to to Vodafone the corporate. So it, it has a board of trustees, it's a registered charity. What is the proximity or the how close are you to the corporate and how much of an influence do they have? And just describe a bit about how that plays out. Yeah, so you're right, we are a separate entity. We are a, we're a registered charitable trust and have been for a long time. And our board of trustees is half internal Vodafone directors from the executive team and half uh, external directors who have real expertise in the youth sector, in te ao Māori, in the philanthropic space. Uh, So they set the strategy, they set the governance, and our relationship with Vodafone is incredibly positive. As I said, we get to utilise the expertise that sits within the business. We get to engage with programs around uh, device and digital equity 
that we can only do because of the relationship with Vodafone. So it's a really positive mutual relationship of benefit. We receive huge amounts of support from the staff across Vodafone and we can only exist because those people within the business are doing their jobs really well, making sure the business is thriving and therefore the foundation is thriving. And there must have been points of tension when you made that shift from asking your stakeholders, you know, your your um, Vodafone, who you should support and how you should support them, to moving towards a strategy of helping a specific group of people or young people. There must have been some tensions along the way. And was that always the case where the board and the leadership at Vodafone, the culprit, were aligned? Was that Did that see through that period? Oh, that, that happened in about 2007, so long before my interactions with the Vodafone Foundation started. I would say that we, we have always been well supported by the staff and that those tensions are, are, are very, very minimal. I think what we've been able to do, particularly over the last four or five years, is tell the stories of the foundation, tell the stories of the work and the impact that we're doing in community, and tell the stories of the incredible young people and organisations we work with. And take the staff and um, the leadership of Vodafone on that journey with us. So there's certainly no tensions around that I'm aware of. Changing tack for a bit and, and looking at your career, in my mind, I returned back from the UK around 2018 and you were someone I was incredibly impressed by. You had significant experience in philanthropy, but also social enterprise. And looking back to your past, like this kind of drive to you know, make the world a better place or have an impact on people started quite early for you maybe at school maybe at university but you got involved in a lot of volunteering tell us about those early forays yeah so i mean to contextualize uh, my mother was a social worker my father was um, a special education teacher and my family was always heavily involved uh, in volunteering so i definitely started my life with those values deeply embedded and had a real activist streak when I was a when I was a young person as well. One of my early experiences was um, helping to organise a high school walkout in Brisbane when I was about fourteen. That was protesting against the uh, f- the French government at the time testing nuclear weapons in the Muroa Atoll in the Pacific. And you know that was a really formative experience helping to organise something that felt very radical at the time and really, really important to me as a young person. And being very successful at that, not not personally, but as a collective, we were very successful. We saw more than 4,000 students walk out of their high schools, head into the centre of Brisbane City and protest. And that, I think, gave me the intent and the confidence to head into the community sector as a career pathway. Uh, after a few twists and turns. I could just imagine your kitchen table sitting around with your parents and them probably uh, encouraging you to have a voice and and to kind of act, go into activism. Was that what it was like? I think perhaps my um, my tendency to break the rules through the process was a little more than they were uh, hoping for. Yeah. Um, but they were certainly very supportive of the, the ideas. They were supportive of um, of the conversations and the direction I was heading, if not always the tools that I was using to head there. And was that early sense in your life, like really early, that you had that, I want to make my life count and I want it, my life to be a sort of force for good? Do you remember literally having that thought process? Or I don't know if it was as clear-cut as that. I think um, I think for some of us, there's all, uh, there are 
experiences, there are catalytic experiences that occur that send us off in different directions. And then there's also some assumptions about our lives. And I think for me, the assumption that I had was always that my life would need to be about uh, being in service and trying to create positive change because that's what I was surrounded by. And that's what I saw as my role models. So I think there was less of a moment in which I decided to head in this direction and more of a general wave pushing me there. And has empathy always been a trait of, of yours? Like sort of, because that comes through clearly in your background. I want to dive into that in a minute, but getting or putting yourself in the shoes of others? I think, well, I would like to think that. I certainly haven't always, particularly in leadership roles, behaved with the greatest amounts of empathy, but empathy and, hmm, I actually think. It might be less empathy that has driven particularly my early work and more the idea of connection. So the idea that we are all connected to each other, the idea that all of the challenges that we face are connected to each other and that we need to make sure that no one and no challenges are falling through the gaps and that we're supporting multiple levels of things at the same time in order to get to better outcomes. Because, yeah, you, you really get stuff done. Like you start stuff, launch stuff, and like, tell us about those initiatives that followed that kind of, you, you obviously moved to New Zealand at some point, and then what, what did you do then? What was that phase of your life like? So I originally moved to New Zealand. Um, I, I, so my undergraduate study was in film and communication, uh, and I originally moved to New Zealand in order to make a rock climbing documentary. Uh, so I spent my first year in Aotearoa literally hanging off cliffs with cameras, and I, I really fell in love with New Zealand, with the communities that I was engaging with and with the environment here, which is just incredibly stunning. And almost from the first moment I arrived, this felt like home. It felt like a place where I could breathe out. One of the things that I did really early on in my time in New Zealand was a traverse of the Darren's mountain range with a group of other women. So we, you know, we kayaked Lake Tiano one day, we ran the Milford Track the next day, we climbed Mida Peak the following day, we cycled the Milford Road. We had this this um, wonderful adventure uh, and we did it in service of rape crisis. So we did it as a way of telling a really great story about adventure in the outdoors and then going into schools and talking to high school students about supporting each other, about having difficult conversations and it was a really, again, it was a really transformative experience, both the adventure itself, but also that, that act of going into schools and talking to young people, using adventure uh, as a pathway into talking about healthy relationships and sexual violence. That was really powerful for me. That was, um, that was a moment when I was like, actually, the adventure is great and the making a film is great, but this feels really important. Mm. This feels like something that I want to invest my time in. Yeah. And so that was my first foray into um, the community sector in New Zealand and it, and it really just spiralled from there. Yeah, and you clearly you know, gained a passion for it from that. So what next for you after that? So after that trip, I actually traversed the entire South Island with another group of women in partnership with Youthline uh, and tried to stay as close to the spine of the Southern Alps as we could through that adventure. Again, used that as a tool for talking to young people, became a crisis listener for Youthline, and from there moved into a youth work role at the Regional Volunteer Centre in Otago, and from there ran the organisation for a couple of years before moving on again. But all of these experiences were really positive, and most of them were focused around creating better outcomes for young people and understanding that youth, youth work sector. 
And as I've sort of touched on, like you've kind of blended an entrepreneurial action and spirit with, um, you know, with more traditional charity roles or, or governance, but pure charity during that period, did you see some sort of ways you want to challenge that and, and make a sort of more empowered, um, social impact? Cause you've, you've set up and, and that's kind of want to talk about, um, you know, thank you payroll and the thank you charitable trust and just, yeah, did, did social enterprise and, and maybe another way of, of making an impact start to become a focus for you? Yes, I think, um, you know, I ran a number of different charitable organisations and one of the things that was always the biggest restriction for us wasn't the value of the work, it wasn't the quality of the work, it wasn't the outcomes of the intervention in community, it was access to capital. And so that, for me, raised a couple of questions or pointed me in a few directions. One of those was social enterprise and the other one was philanthropy. And so from a social enterprise perspective, I worked with Thank You Payroll as the founding CEO of Thank You Payroll, which is a social enterprise. It is a software as a service that helps people run payroll. And it was set up always uh, to generate funds to benefit everybody who is engaging with it uh, and to also donate money back into the charitable sector as well. So that was one avenue. And Thank You Payroll is 11 or 12 years old now. Mm. And at this point has served, I think, served more than 11,000 SMEs and charities around the country at various times. It's invested more than $1.5 million back into communities. It has a, a large staff group. It is, um, you know, offsets at 120% of carbon emissions. It's essentially a business that invests money back into community, supports the team, and tries to make sure that everyone that it's interacting with as an organisation has a really positive experience and comes out better off. So it's payroll giving in its simplest form. Well, it's described no, as that. actually, it's, it's, it's actually not payroll giving, although that's one mechanism. It's actual payrolls. So as a business, I, you know, fill out timesheets, pay my staff, pay my taxes, make sure that, you know, all of that, that process, which for many small organisations can be really stressful, making sure you've got the tax tax levels right, making sure that everything's going to the government on time, all of the forms are filled in. It does that process. So it is not the sexiest business in the world, but payroll is something that most organisations need. So it's a really good social enterprise business because it's very sticky. Once people come into an organisation, they don't really like to leave because it's got a recurring revenue model. So people are paying for that service on a monthly basis. And because it's very structured, you can look at and predict how things might grow and you can support people who are running small businesses or small charities in a really tangible way. And a gap you saw in the market, if you like, and, and you started it with a group of others inspired to take the opportunity. Just tell us about how you got the funding for it and like how, how hard it was to launch. So I, I wasn't the founder of Thank You Payroll. My husband actually was. And he spent the first couple of years building the back end, so doing all of the technical work in the background before he brought myself and another person on board um, the company essentially bootstrapped, so very, very tiny amounts of investment in the early days, but generated, started generating revenue, small amounts of revenue relatively early on. And our charitable model meant that even pre-profit, we were already giving money away to community organisations. So the first few years were definitely a lot of 
ramen noodles. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the company is now really thriving. It's really successful. Uh, and I stepped out last year. I was still in a director's role, but stepped out last year. And it's just, it's going from strength to strength. And decision to step away from that in terms of, um, was Fabi decision or professional or? I think it was just time um, for, for me to move on, for the organisation to be heading in a different direction. And um, my husband actually stepped back onto the board at that time as well. I really wanted to focus my energy uh, on fewer things. And at the time, I think I was on five boards while working a full-time job with, uh, with an, a toddler. Yeah. So it's also about getting a little bit more focused and making sure that, that I was really adding value to all of the things that I was working with in a really meaningful way. And one of the things you did co-found, and you can um, claim this, is uh, the cheese cartel, which <laughs> I thought was wonderful. So from what I saw it as, there's a subscription model where, you know, wonderful cheeses would turn up every month. That's what it looked like from the outside. But tell, tell us about the cheese cartel. <laughs> I think you started that in 2018 or 17? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, 2018. Yeah, actually, I'm not sure. One of those years. <laughs> So the cheese cartel started with um, a group of five friends. We wanted to solve a couple of problems. One, we wanted to eat a lot of really good cheese. Uh, so that was the first thing we were looking for in our business. But also New Zealand has these incredible small-scale um, cheese producers all over the country, and they really struggle to get access to markets. So they struggle to get their product to consumers, but they make beautiful produce. And at the same time, consumers in New Zealand often talk about you know, these wonderful cheeses that exist overseas. But the, these cheeses, these these products exist in New Zealand and people just don't have access to them. So what we, what we did was set up a subscription service where every month we would cur curate a cheese box with four or five different cheeses from very small scale um, artisan producers around the country and then send that to hundreds of people around the country who would then have these experiences, get access to beautiful, really creative new types of cheeses that are really delicious and build those relationships with those producers. So it's a sort of, again, the philosophy is whatever we do, we want everyone in that system to win. So we won, we got to eat lots of cheese because we needed to try it before we put it in the cheese boxes. The customers got this beautiful experience that we hoped would be really delightful and access to new cheeses. And the producers maybe wouldn't have to go to the markets on Saturday morning and try and sell their cheeses from a stall every week because they were now able to access customers much more easily yeah. and in a, in, a, in a larger scale. So it was a delightful business. Yeah, sounds great. I love cheese as well. So in terms of decision to sell it, so again on that theme of sort of trying to simplify your life or, or doing little, did you, did you, as a commercial enterprise, mm -hmm. did you end up selling to a, to a buyer? We did. Yeah. And so, so when we were thinking about starting this business, we weren't thinking about it as being the next thing that paid our salaries. What we were thinking about is we wanted to do something that was fun. We wanted to do something as a group together uh, and we wanted to learn some things. And we learned a lot. We learned about the, um, the subscription service model. We learned about cheese. We learned about how to ship a refrigerated product all over New Zealand in a short time frame. And one of the things we wanted to learn was how do you sell a business? How do you go through that process of setting up, establishing, getting something functional and profitable and then passing it on? And so the decision to sell was less about simplification and less about profit and more about, well, we don't know how to do this, so let's learn. 
And it wasn't a life-changing amount of money that you ended up with, but a great experience and you learned a lot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is not, um, we wouldn't be retiring on the funds from Teeth Cartel, but what we do have is this wonderful experience, this learning opportunity, and it's now really thriving with somebody who does want it to be their, their full-time job, who does want it to be more than a side hustle. And so that's a win as well. We've seen it, we've grown it, and we've handed it on to someone who'll do it better than we ever could. And you guys subscribe? You're still getting cheese? Yes. Yeah, great. Yes. And in terms of, you know, we've all been through a crazy time with COVID and, and, you know, I've, from what I've seen of your life, you've really engaged with the joys of being a, a mum. And, and as we're interviewing today, you're pregnant and about to have your second child. So congratulations on that. And, um, <laughs> I think sus- suspicion that you're doing this between naps. Uh, are you of, of another child or <laughs> certainly grabbing some time? I seen you also connect with the outdoors. Um, was that, was that the experience over COVID really? doubling down on family outdoors and maybe doing a little less public speaking and um, or actually it was just Zoom in the outdoors with your your friends. <laughs> yeah, um, so, so in New Zealand, um, I actually came back from parental leave with my first child the day before we went into our first lengthy whole country lockdown. And so it was a really interesting return to work experience. But what I think the last couple of years has done from a positive perspective is really allowed me in my work and with the Vodafone Foundation to get really focused, to really think about what we're doing, where we're spending our time, both personally and professionally, and get a bit pointier in that. So rather than having a really diverse portfolio of things that I'm doing, having fewer, doing them better, and being really clear on what the outcome I'm looking for is from a professional perspective. So that's been a really, that's been one of the silver linings of COVID for me from a personal perspective. Yeah. And you're involved in the Winston Churchill Fellowship. You're also uh, won an award and you're, uh, you know, your order of, is it order of merit that you've, that you've won? Yes. That sort of high profile accolades, is that a comfortable place for you? Do you is it something that you, feels right for you? Uh, I see all of that as being a mechanism for doing work. Yeah. The, the, I think accolades, I think public profile, those things are a tool for being able to do the work more effectively. So if I think about the purpose and the co-papa of Te Roro, the Vodafone Foundation, we want to create a more equitable Aotearoa for young people. That is our clear driver. We know that we can't do that by ourselves. That's not possible for, you know, we can't facilitate that with $2 million a year and a team of seven. So what we need to do is build a movement for change. We need to start changing some of those cultural narratives. We need to start talking to people about some of the challenges our young people face and the ways in which we can support better outcomes. And so that public profile is a mechanism to do that. So it's not about, it's not about me, it's about the work. It's about what we can drive forward by being able to get into rooms, by being able to talk at conferences, by being able to write that op-ed for the newspaper. It gives us a, a, a mechanism for helping to shift positive change. Wonderful. Lani Evans, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely and all the best for the future. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.